Almost exactly a year ago today, my husband Connor and I were visiting the Louvre Art Gallery in Paris. We were very excited to be in Paris on holiday. We decided to do the touristy thing and go see the Louvre. Well, we had been given some disclaimers from some friends and family saying, you know what, you'll probably have a good time at the Louvre, but the Mona Lisa is very overrated. And that's what the Louvre is known for. It's like, we have the Mona Lisa. So Connor and I went to the Louvre that day. We were very excited to go. Um, we were going through all the different places. They have massive, beautiful paintings. Some of the paintings were probably the size of my apartment wall. A lot of them are biblically inspired. It was so beautiful. And we got to the room with the Mona Lisa and there was a massive line. People were not wrong. There was probably a line about 50 people. But I was pleasantly surprised because when my mom had been to see the Lou, she said they don't even have the lights on the painting all the time. They flick it on and turn it off to keep it preserved. So I guess they have a new technique. So there was light on it the whole time, which I was very excited about it. I said to Connor, well, I think we should see it. Like, I don't want to wait for an hour in line, but we're here. We have to see the Mona Lisa. So we decided, you know what, instead of going to see it directly on, so they had the painting, a glass case, a security guard, then about 10 feet, and then a line of about 50 people who wanted to come see it directly on. And so we said, maybe we can just walk beside the line so we can just kind of do a side view of the Mona Lisa and then continue. We are probably going to the cafe. We love a good museum cafe. So we were walking along and we stop and we look and we gaze into the Mona Lisa and wow, she was beautiful and unexpectedly it was a very transcendent experience. We were looking at her and we both just felt overcome with emotion. I, I teared up, I don't think Connor did, but I was just like, wow, this is so beautiful. And we just were gazing at her. And then the most crazy thing happened. The security guard that was looking after and protecting the Mona Lisa actually came up to us. He unlatched the cue divider and said, do you want to come a little closer? So we're like, is this a test? What's happening? So we start to walk a little bit closer towards the painting. And we're probably about seven feet now. He says, no, no, come, come right in front of it. We are literally cutting in line fully. This is not a good Canadian thing to do. We are blocking everyone and we're about one foot from the Mona Lisa. It was beautiful. I, I couldn't believe what was happening. He said to us, do you want me to take your picture? And we're like, oh no, no, we can't, we can't have that. That's too, too much. We will remember this forever. And so we very quickly excused ourselves. He would have let us stay for a while, but we didn't want to get yelled at by the people in line. But everyone was so respectful. So we start walking back and I was saying to Connor, why do you think that happened? Like, I, I've never heard of that happening before. And he said, I think he saw the love in our eyes for that painting and just wanted us to have a beautiful experience. So I was thinking, oh, maybe. And then I look over and probably at that moment, my ankle probably hurt because actually, if you remember, maybe a year ago, I had sprained my ankle. So I had an ankle brace on. And if you also don't know about my husband, he has a slightly shorter right arm. And so when I look back of where we were standing, I all of a sudden see there is a small blue sign with a handicap symbol right where we were standing. And we had accidentally lined up at the disability accessibility area to go see the painting. And we had no idea. We were embarrassed, but we just had to laugh at ourselves, realizing we thought there was this one reality going on where we were being so honored because we were these beautiful art enthusiasts. But no, 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 they were just trying to follow their disability and accessibility inclusion policy, which was very great, by the way. 
but we were so embarrassed because we were more than capable to stand in the line. It probably would have been better for someone maybe who is more visually impaired or something and need to get closer. So we were embarrassed, but we just had to laugh at ourselves. And it's a funny story. And I started thinking, why is that story funny to us? Why is it funny when we have a reality that we think is going on, but there's actually something more true happening underneath? And so I started looking up, oh, there's actually different forms of comedy and things that make us laugh. There's slapstick, there's deadpan, and there's also satire. And this would actually fall under satire because there's one thing that the character thinks is happening, but there's actually a true reality that the audience is seeing. And in today's story of Esther, we're going to see the exact same thing happen to Haman. Well, we have a lot to get into today. Now, for anyone who's ever thought that the Bible is boring, maybe there are some boring parts. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but this one is surely not one of those. It's theatrical. It's Shakespearean in a way. We're going to see the bad, guy, the bad guy gets what's coming to him, and there's a lot going on. But what I really want to focus in on today, and maybe this is a bit unique, you don't usually focus on the villain of the story, but we're going to do that to get together today and dive into Haman's heart and journey. And from what I hope is that by presenting Haman as kind of the opposite example of how we should live, we will actually see a deeper reality in how God works in our world. All right, let's dive in together. So we're going to be opening up Esther chapter 6, if you have it on your phone or you want to open a physical Bible. Um, but just really, really quickly, we're going to go over Esther chapter 5. So Esther is hosting a banquet for her husband, King Xerxes, and Haman is invited. And the purpose of this banquet is because she wants to reveal the evil plot that Haman has to kill the Jewish people and to kill Mordecai. And so that's the purpose of this, but Haman has no clue. So he thinks, oh, I'm super in with the king and queen. She doesn't have the guts to say it yet. She wants to wait. And so she actually gives him an additional invita invitation to dinner. And so Haman leaves thinking, he he he, I have outsmarted everybody and I am so in with the king and queen. And he begins to continue to plan his plot against Mordecai. If this was a kid's movie, you would definitely see him like templing his fingers or wringing his hands and doing his evil villain laugh at the end of this story. Okay, so we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 6. It says, that night the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. So the picture is really set. The king is here in bed. You can imagine it's a beautiful, grandiose room. And he wants a bedtime story. It's not good night, Moon, though. He wants to hear his own reign being read to him. I know you're kind of painting Xerxes maybe as a fool or a little bit of a diva in this situation, but I have to say I do relate. I remember as a kid, I used to love rewatching our home videos of when we were little, so sorry Xerxes, I can't relate to you. So in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask, do you think he's going to ask, sorry king, are we good for our two o'clock meeting tomorrow? Oh, are we good? Is the royal color still purple? Just wanted to double check. No, no, no. He wants to ask the king to impale Mordecai on a pole that he had prepared. 
So this is Haman's life here. We're seeing what a little bit of his thought life is like. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, in great detail, I might add, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that a man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone who he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace, leave nothing uh, leave out nothing you have suggested. Wow, <laughs> that must have been a shock for Haman, for Mordecai, not for him. So Haman took the robes, I'm sure begrudgingly, and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse and led him through the city square, shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife, Juresh, and all of his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Again, if this is a play or something, go dun-dun-dun-dun, because we know what's coming for Haman. Wow, this is a juicy passage and there is a lot that we can pull out, but we obviously have a limited time and we're not going to be here all day. So the three things that really became clear to me as I was reading, looking through Haman's journey and his heart are these three things. I'm going to read all three right now so we can track with them later. The first one is number one, Haman thinks that he has the inside scoop on reality. Number two, Haman takes himself way too seriously. Number three, Haman is given a warning and a crossroads. All right, let's jump into number one. Haman thinks that he has the inside scoop on reality. Obviously, we see Haman coming to talk to the king, and he does speak to the king, but it's actually the king who invites him in. But before that, Haman is on a one-track mind plan of going to tell the king that he's going to impale Mordecai. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think my boss would really appreciate me coming to them while they were in bed at home. Nah, uh, uh that would not be good. And I'm sure in that culture, that would not be good. So obviously, Haman is not clearly aware that maybe his own evil plan is not really what everyone else is thinking. And he really has this one-track, ambitious, kind of selfish agenda that he's going on. We see in the chapter before that when he's at the banquet with Queen Esther, that he feels so strongly that the reason he's been invited there and invited back again is because he has so much favor with the queen. But it's really the exact opposite. But Haman truly feels, and he has a very stubborn and hard heart around this, that he really knows what's going on. And he even thinks to himself later when the king says, who um, should I honor? He thinks, who would the king want to honor more than me? So we really see this selfish agenda of Haman and how he really thinks he has this inside scoop of what's going on. 
And I think for all of us, unfortunately, we probably can relate to that. We can relate to this feeling of thinking, oh, I really know what's going on in the room. I can read what everyone's thinking. I know why that person reacted. If they only asked me, I would have known how to handle this situation. And the truth is, friends, that is not how God works. God is the one that's omniscient. It is not us. And so in this story, the author really presents Haman as this fool in a way, showing that this is what it looks like when you have this one-tracked mind. And I hope that you don't think that I'm, I'm like, poo-pooing on having ambition or standing up for injustices, but it really is more these selfish plans that we have that we really clouds our reality. Now, as we see Haman presented as this fool, we also see that God wants to teach us something through that, that he wants to give us a different inside scoop of reality. And that's such a cool thing about being a Christian, friends, is that we have the tool of prayer, is that there are so many things going on in people's hearts and minds that we're just unaware of, not to mention the spiritual realm that's going on all the time. And God, through prayer, wants to reveal just even a small amount of those things. But what it requires is a heart posture of, you know what, I probably don't know what's going on in every situation. My perspective on this might be a little bit flawed or maybe I don't have the full picture. And so it requires that heart change. So that's the first thing that we can learn from looking at the opposite of what Haman does. Number two, Haman takes himself way too seriously. We see this again when he says, oh, who should be honored? Of course it's me. He doesn't leave any room to say, who exactly did you have in mind? Or maybe when he gives the plan, maybe he could make it a little bit more vague and say, oh, maybe you could have a parade or maybe you could get something from the royal treasury. No, he's like, glad you ask and brings the equivalent of a folder with different tab colors of, I have been thinking about this long, a long time for how I should be honored. And he really doesn't leave any room for him to say, oh, it's funny you mentioned Mordecai. I thought you were going to mention me or something like that. He just takes himself way too seriously. I feel like if this was on the stage, you would literally hear when he says, glad you asked, maestro, and he'd have a whole dance number explaining how he should have this big parade and have jazz hand at the end. And then obviously, as we know what's going to happen, Mordecai is going to be given this parade. And it says later in the passage that he comes home completely dejected and humiliated which is actually quite crazy when you think about it. He was just given such an honor for the king. It's not like we're in a situation where Haman was being tortured or intentionally humiliated. He was actually doing something really wonderful and being given the opportunity to help in the king's parade, which I'm sure for most people would be really honoring. My husband and I were recently in the UK and we actually met someone who was going to be attending the coronation. And they were very excited and humbled by that and were just like, wow, I get to be there for the king. And this is Haman's complete opposite experience because he doesn't leave that room to be able to fall at all. And who is our guide to look to? It's Jesus. Jesus says in the book of Matthew when he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble. And we really have this version of Jesus that we see who is humble and he is meek. And yet he has been said, even by secular culture, that he is one of the most influential people of all time. So that's our guide, is not the Haman special. And I really think just on a side practical note, 
we got to be able to laugh at ourselves. If things happen, if we fall down, if we mess up and we don't leave any room for that, we're just going to be setting ourselves up for failure and, and just humiliation. I work with toddlers a lot and they are so close to the ground that when they fall, it's really not a big deal. And they even have a little diaper to cushion their fall, which is quite nice. Whereas when adults fall, it's a big moment. And so just for all of us, even like my husband and I at the Louvre, we just had to laugh at ourselves. And there's actually something really freeing, realizing God is king, not me. It's okay, I don't need to take myself so seriously. All right, and the last one, and I really think this is the most important. And this is Haman was given a warning and a crossroads. So we see that his wife and his friends say, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue to oppose him. And again, it's not like they were vague around this at all. It's not like, well, I don't know, maybe you should get this up, try a different hobby. They're saying, this, you will never, ever, ever succeed. This will be fatal. And yet, what do we see? We see Haman being led off by the eunuch to the banquet, and we know what's going to happen next. Now, the thing is, we have no idea what would happen if Haman said, you know what? I need to reevaluate. Clearly, Mordecai means something to the king. What if I go to the king and say, you know what? I had this plan, but I don't think it's going to work out this way. I know sometimes in the Old Testament we have these procedures and policies that can't seem to be reversed, but they really need to work on that. But we don't know what would have happened because what Haman didn't know at that moment is that Queen Esther was a Jew. And that's really where the king's wrath came out on him is because it was attacking his wife. And so if he would have said, hey, I need to reevaluate this a little bit. Maybe he still would have been punished, but maybe he would have still had his life. We don't know. And friends, God always gives us a chance to slow down, to be warned, to stop when we are sinning. I remember when I was a little girl and I had told a lie about something, and I remember this so clearly to this day. My mom took me aside. We were in my grandparents' house, and she sat me down on the couch and said, Hannah, it is a blessing that you were caught in a lie so early and so young. And I remember thinking, this does not feel like a blessing. I feel so embarrassed and I'm in trouble now. But it was so true. She's saying, getting caught in something early, you can change your ways and do something different. And friends, we serve a God who wants to give us second chances. And it's not just, oh, let's have a behavior modification moment. It's Jesus saying, I will take this sin on me and I will pay for it and you can be wiped clean and have a fresh start. Wow, that is so incredible. I know we can think of many, even Christian leaders in our own city who have fallen. And I can imagine that God probably gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond and say, you know what, this is wrong. I need to reevaluate. I need to stop and turn away from this. But it's until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, it's out of our control. And we have no idea the ripple effects of those things. So God always gives a warning and a crossroads. And as we see with Haman, he does not take it and it ends up with his demise later. So friends, as we close today and just reflect on these three principles that we see in Haman's life, I want to ask you, where is God asking you to reevaluate your own view of reality, your own perspective? Is there a moment where God's saying, you know what, I think you might just need to take a step back from that and pray and get on your knees and say, God, reveal what is true for me. Reveal what is your truth what is going on, reveal your will and change my heart rather than the other way around. 
Number two, where are we taking ourselves too seriously? Where do we need an ego check? Where do we need our pride to be humbled? How can we follow Jesus' example of being meek and humble? And number three, where are there moments in our life that God is trying to get our attention, has put friends and family in our life saying, hey, you're better than this, or I don't think this is a good path for you to go down, that we're ignoring those warnings? Or where are those crossroad moments where God is saying, turn around, repent, I want to give you new life, and we're ignoring those things. So friends, I would just ask that um, as we continue in worship that we reflect on this. So as I was finishing this sermon, I realized that the Lord's Prayer actually came to mind because all three of these things actually appear in the Lord's Prayer. We have the reality check is about praying, your will be done, your kingdom come, right? We have that in the reverse order though. Um, we also have um, Haman taking himself too seriously. We have the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, to Jesus, not to ourselves. And then as well, we have that crossroads warning that please forgive us of our sins and lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. We have that prayer. So in a moment, we are going to say that together. And if you're at home, you can say this in your own language or you can say it in the version that you have memorized, um, but we'll also have it come up. All right, let's say it together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.